I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello. Welcome to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. My name is Hoy, and with me is my co-host, as always, the lovely and talented Jeff Goad. Well, hello there. Jeff, what are we reading this week? This week we are reading John Blair's The Face in the Frost. From 1969, is that right? That's correct. Okay. And this is the sole work uh, listed by him in Appendix N, um, but we will uh, see if it merits um, further mention past that once we talk about this book. So what version do you have there? I've got the first Ace printing from 1978. It's got a Carl Lundgren cover, and on it we've got Prospero holding a book, uh, holding his magical wand over the um, the gravestone from the empty forest. Okay, and Prospero is uh, one of the one wizard of the protagonists? Two, one of our two wizards, Prospero okay. and Roger Bacon. Cool. I've got, uh, I think I actually read your copy back in the day, but the copy I have in front of me right now is the... Collier Books Edition from 1991 with a Rowena Morrill cover. Um, It's basically probably, again, Prospero with a crystal ball that appears to have an evil skull face uh, sort of facing us. Um, Maybe not as uh, evocative as the one that you have, but it's still a pretty cool cover. So uh, you want to read the back copy on yours? Sure. Mine is two quotes. I have read three absolutely first-class fantasy novels published since The Lord of the Rings. One of them is The Face in the Frost by a writer of amazing brilliance and charm named John Blairs. The tale is rich, hilarious, inventive, filled with infectious good humor, grisly horrors, slithering evil, blumbering monarchs, and various and sundry menaces of the supernatural variety, says Lynn Carter. And the second quote is, Lively, witty, unpretentious, The Face in the Frost takes us into pure nightmare before we know it, and out the other side. This is authentic fantasy by a writer who knows what wizardry is all about, says Ursula K. Le Guin. High praise indeed. Uh, Mine says, Once in a long while, perhaps once in a generation if we're lucky, comes a fantasy novel that defies characterization. Richly inventive, filled with the laughter and terror that that border life, this tale of wizards set at bay by a power beyond any they can match is an extraordinary work that is equal parts terror and magic, humor and tears. As readers, we need only to open the book and let its marvels unfold before our astonished eyes. And there's one more quote here that's actually kind of funny. The Rocky and Bullwinkle of fantasy. Witty, irreverent, erudite, and deeply magical. I've loved them both since I was a kid, and I get more of the jokes every year. Ellen Kushner, author of Swords Point and Thomas the Rhymer. Hmm. So do we think that, uh, again, this is what's, uh, what's on the chain is what's in the book? Yeah, no. Okay. And we'll get into it more in the library, but... Yeah. Um, you know, there are parts of the story. I mean, I, it's it's definitely bursting with like really creative ideas and like really like fun things that you can definitely use like in your gaming table. Um, but overall, I just I really didn't enjoy reading the novel. It just it didn't quite work for me. Hmm. Okay. Well, d- dig deeper into that. But do you want to? Uh... Bring up our high Gaxian word of the week before that. Sure, absolutely. Now this this novel, the the way it's written, is not really the kind of novel that you find a lot of super high Gaxian words uh, buried within it. But it did have the word alembic. Alembic, and uh, an alembic is a distilling apparatus. It is now obsolete, consisting of a rounded necked flask and a cap with a long beak for condensing and conveying the products to a receiver. It is on the second page of our novel here, and uh, in it, it says, In the long, high living room, heated by a wide-mouthed green stone fireplace, were the usual paraphernalia of a practicing wizard. Alembics, spiraling copper coils, alcohol lamps, all burping, sputtering, and glurping as red, blue, purple, and green liquids boiled, dripped, or just slurched uncertainly in their containers. And it just seemed like a fun word to use because it's, it's, it's a word that's not used very often. But when it is used, it, I often find that it's used in describing 
the contents of like a wizard's sanctum. Sanctum, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I think we should always. Uh, I mean, we don't want to like gild the lily, but I, I think we should always give more sensory information when we're presenting at the table. So mm-hmm. give, give, give the players the best effort, our best effort at creating the world between their ears for them. Yes. Yeah. So. And Alembics can do that. Alembics and the, <laughs> and the various fumes they may emit, <laughs> whatever the good stuff may be. But yes, so um, over in the library, we've already given my, uh, a sneak peek as to what I think. But now that we're um, nice and comfortable here in the library, Hoy, what did you think? I quite like this book, although I confess that it didn't quite have the same effect on me this time as the last time I read it, which is probably in the 90s. And again, maybe it's because this time I was reading it with an eye towards how it relates to D&D, whereas last time I was reading it just purely as a fantasy. So I like the sort of the moodiness, the sort of sense of creeping dread that builds up. Initially, we have a sort of very sunny, you know, this wizard who's kind of a little bit uh, Prospero, who's just kind of a little bit eccentric, typical, kind of a little bit absent-minded. He's got this kooky house that has all sorts of, you know, apparently harmless mar- magical artifacts uh, in it. And, but then he just starts slowly sensing that things are awry. And then um, this feeling is brought to the fore when he's visited by his fellow wizard, Roger Bacon, who was based on a real historical figure who was um, a Franciscan friar who was considered maybe the, one of the fathers of modern science or the scientific method. Um, it's not clear that Roger Bacon in this book is actually the real Roger Bacon. Maybe it's just sort of, sort of meant to give you an echo of a guy who's both knowledgeable and wizardly. But anyway, so and dread slowly builds up and, you know, the plot is revealed. But yeah, so I felt um, the sense of dread was not as heavy the most recent time I read it as when I was younger when I read it. Um, again, maybe because I was looking for different things from the book or maybe it just was not in the right frame of mind. But um, what was the sort of uh, genesis of your reaction to this book? Well, um, first I would say that some of the some of the scenes of Dread I did find were effective. Mm-hmm. I thought the scene with the five dials was truly a scary moment. Mm-hmm. Um, really inventive, really freaky. Um, I feel like the scene in the empty forest with the voice of the young girl and all of that, I thought all of that was highly effective. But like, for example, in the last episode, when we did Jack of Shadows, we dis- I-, I was discussing how, you know, you have a series of, of, of events, but they really felt interconnected and seemed to really kind of build on the story and affect the character, the characters and their overall arc, where with the face in the frost... It felt a little bit more like the th- Three Hearts and Three Lions to me, where all of these things keep happening, but they don't really seem to be connected or building toward anything. It kind of seems like it's a collection of random things that happen. Like there is a beginning and there's an end of the novel, but then there's just kind of a bunch of jumbled stuff in between. So it didn't really feel like it had a strong narrative flow. I didn't feel that it had uh, a character arc in it. It I certainly is an exercise in whimsy to a certain extent in terms of uh, sort of like the humor of how the characters are described in the house and stuff like that. So, um, and I just read now that uh, Valerius kind of considered this sort of an experiment in sort of, um, you know, he had read Tolkien's book, so he wanted to write a wizard, but with a little bit more sort of more foibles than Gandalf did. Um, and he said he projected a lot of himself into Prospero. But, um, you know, maybe he was more concerned with these kind of trappings than, as you say, sort of a, a narrative through line in yeah. a sense. And also part of it is possibly just an aesthetic thing for me because, like, for example, Julie Taymor. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen the movie Titus by Julie Taymor? It's, that's Anthony Hopkins, right? Yeah. Okay. I hate that movie. Uh-huh. And part of the reason why I hate that movie is, you know, it's, it's, it's Shakespeare, but it's, like, with motorcycles in the Colosseum. And I, I, just, I just find that kind of stuff really tacky. It doesn't work for me. As, as a gimmick. So you don't like the little bits of anachronisms that are in, in the book here? No. I, I, and, and for me, it's like you've got a goofy talking mirror that Prospero is watching a Cubs game through. And it's also beside like scenes of like really just like bizarre terror, like the scene of the five dials, which we can talk about more later. And then you've got like this this wacky king who's got this tower that's full of um, astrological equipment. And he's like, um, and like they're talking about the black planet Yugoth. And like very clearly there's all of this like Lovecraftian stuff that's happening in here that's right beside really kind of goofy, kind of slapsticky magician silliness that's right beside um, anachronisms. And I, I don't know, like just aesthetically, it didn't work together. It mm-hmm. all just felt so like kind of like a big jumbled mess to me. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, uh, after this, J- John Valeris never wrote another uh, quote unquote adult 
fantasy. It basically pivoted towards YA mid-grade fiction. Uh, you may know of this uh, house with a clock in its walls or The Curse of the Blue Figurine, which had a bunch of lovely Ed Gregory illustrations. But um, these were kind of considered a sort of rite of passage in uh, middle school when I was growing up okay. to read those books. And, in fact, they're not at all different in terms of the prose. Really? In terms of, like, the prose style is almost identical. The content is actually a little bit more streamlined. So, again, it's less whimsical because they're really set in sort of the modern day at that time, but with magic and horror and dread. So there's less the sense of anachronism. Mm-hmm. And so maybe he just found his metier uh, after this book. This was him just trying to sort of create effects and it got a good reaction, um, but maybe out of proportion to what is actually in the book. And that may have just been that, that sort of starvation for new fantasy that was there in the late 60s after, in the wake of Tolkien and the Ballantine adult fantasy series and everything that also was going on. People were just so starved for new content. So anything that came on that had some even a whiff of originality maybe have got, might have gotten overpraised yeah. you know, in that time period. It is interesting, though, because you do have you know, like Ursula K. Le Guin, who's just being effusive about it on the yeah. back of this book here, and Gary Gygax includes it in the Appendix N. And actually, I feel like it does have a very solid place in Appendix N, because there's a lot of stuff you can take out of here for gaming, which we can talk about more later. Sure. But it, 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 it is surprising to me that I, I do understand that there wasn't a lot of material out there, but it's surprising to me that it's still often a, a title that you will see listed on like you know the best of fantasy literature lists and things like that. I'm not surprised that he went on to write uh, young adult literature. The, the, the prose is very approachable. One of the things that, when I, that I did when I put together the list of the books that we're going to be reading for this is, you know, I included some titles that are not officially on the Appendix N. Sure. Um, I, we, we, went, we, we, we went over that in detail in episode zero. But um, quickly, I just want to mention, like, we, we, we're, we're planning on reading a few authors who aren't officially on the list, like Clark Ashton Smith. And we're also going to be reading some titles by authors who are on the list, but the titles weren't specifically recommended. Mm-hmm. And John Belair's is the only author who has a title on the Appendix N who has written other novels, but I did not include any of those other novels on our reading list. And that's specifically because everything else that he wrote, wrote was for... Why? Yeah. You, yeah. Um, but I would have to say that if you do end up liking this book, that you should seek those books out because, the, again, that sense of dread that was built up and just remembering like when you're a kid and, and you know, how every little you know, knock in the dark could be conceal something, um, it really works. So, um, And I'm curious, yeah. have you read any of them as an adult? Um, most recently, I mean, as an adult, but not recently. So okay. probably like in my twenties or early thirties. Still, that's most, great. Most recent time that I read them. Cool. I quite enjoyed them. And I can, I've definitely enjoyed reading a lot of YA. You know, right. I really enjoyed reading the Harry Potter books and right. the Hunger Games. Sure. And Ready Player maybe One. A, a question of expectation management. If someone just said to you, hey, this is a terrific book about wizards kind of YA feel or it's whimsical, you might pick it up and say, oh yeah, that is a lot of fun. But mm-hmm. you think, oh, I, I'm thinking about D&D. Yeah. Right? Appendix N specifically then you're like, oh, okay, this is a little mismatch between our expectations and, and what's actually in the book. But I think there's a lot to um, to pull out of this, again, later on when we talk about gaming. And I, I do th- I do like the characters. I do like the interplay between the two characters. They're not particularly heroic, but they're brave in their own way. You know, they're not, like, super heroic. It is an interesting idea of, again, these, so these are two knowledgeable men who are, are wizards as opposed to a warrior and a wizard team, tag team, or, you know, some... Uh, you know, a hobbit, a, a peasant, you know, rising up to, to, to the call to adventure, right? So these are two sort of maybe relatively set in their ways middle-aged men, right, who like their comforts and like their toasted cheese sandwiches and, uh-huh. you know, hot tea or whatever. And, you know, they have to go on adventure because something has impinged upon their reality. Is that the stuff of D&D adventures? I don't know, but it might be the stuff of um, some other kind of role-playing setup. Yeah. You know. So I think maybe that again, I think we're maybe looking at a, a slight mismatch between expectation and what's in the in the box, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is I I found that while reading it, I did see a lot of stuff that I could see um I I can absolutely see why this is on the appendix end because I I I do see a lot of a lot of places in which this may have inspired uh, the creation of the world's first fantasy role-playing game and a lot of things that you can take from it now. Um, you know, all of my problems with it were really just the, 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 the prose and the storytelling. It just felt so clunky to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's actually telling, I believe, I'm, if this is not his first novel, it's his first successful novel. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, and again, I haven't read the books recently, that he worked that out when he was working with the YA fiction later on. 
Um, you know, if any of you have read that recently, you can tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm misremembering. But I think um, so. Here is is a sort of a uh, sampler box of interesting little things. You know, sampler box of chocolates, and you always get that strawberry nougat one, which is kind of nasty. In there, <laughs> but hopefully, you get like you know the pecan caramel and all the other ones in there with it. Um, so, I, I, and and I say that. Both jokingly, but in that sense of this, is, uh, as you say, Jeff, it seems to be sort of in the middle, a random assortment of ideas that are yeah. plumped in, some of which work really well and some of which um, don't seem to flow from one to the other. And I should also mention that it's not a bad book. You know, I did enjoy reading it ultimately. And I guess that's the problem when we're when we've got a podcast where we're reading just tons and tons and tons of cool books that um, when we get one that's just way less cool it reads as though it's bad. Right, right. I mean, this <laughs> but is... it's not bad. It's right. just nowhere near as good as all of the... Or I I, have not en- I did not enjoy reading this one anywhere near as much as all the other things that we've been reading for this podcast. Yeah, I mean, maybe if you're like... I, I, again, I quite enjoy this book, but if you're like, whoa, mind blown, this is not that book. Yeah. Right? It's like, oh, I've never seen anything like this before. This is not that book, I think. And I'm, I, I consider myself very lucky that I have yet to encounter a book on the Appendix N yet... Where I've just been like, this is garbage. Why am I reading this? Right. It makes you question the whole project in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> I, and this this book is not that. I've not encountered that book yet mm-hmm. in, the, in, in this project, at least. Right, right. Um, in the real world, of course, I've encountered those books. But, <laughs> uh, you know, as I get older, I... Uh, you know, I used to have be sort of OCD about trying to finish some books, but now I'm like, okay, give me that first chapter, and you know, I don't care what the lit crit says. If I can't make it past that first chapter, it's going back in the pile. Yep, yep. I find that if as soon as I'm playing games on my phone on the subway instead of reading, I'm like, I need to get a different right. book because <laughs> the subway is my reading time. There you go. You know, my habit is to sort of keep two books running, two to three books running at the same time because really? sometimes when I bounce off of a book. I, the best way to get back into it is to go to another book for a little while okay. and then try to come back. Not always successfully, but it seems to work. Yeah, um, I tend to be—I I tend to take a more monogamous approach to my uh, to my okay. reading. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I'm less of a, a literary playboy. Right. I have a yeah, I'm a, a book a book harem. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, again, like I said, not always successfully, but um, uh, and I may have to focus a little bit more if we're going to do this project at the pace that we're hoping to do this. Yeah, but. Um, I would, uh, but yeah, I, I want to go ahead and take some some time to give this book credit where credit is due, though, because um, the scenes that are freaky really are genuinely freaky. Mm-hmm. And uh, one in particular I would like to talk about is the scene at the Five Dials. Mm-hmm. So there is a moment where Prospero and Roger Bacon have been separated, and Prospero believes that Roger Bacon is dead. And he's wandering through the woods, and he sees a signpost for a, um, for a town called the Five Dials. And he desperately needs some place to sleep for the night. Um, he, you know, needs some kind of comforts and safety. And so he follows the sign and discovers this, this strange little town called the Five Dials. And when he gets there, I forget all that happens, but there's like, he sees five playing cards, but one playing card is blank. And the, the first four times the, the, the big bell tower goes off, the bell rings, but then the fifth time, it's just kind of like this dull thud sound. So there's this theme, like every every fifth time, like it, it, it's not quite right. Right. Things are just disquieting. Every single time yeah. the fifth thing comes up, it just kind of throws you off a little bit. And something's just off about this town in general. Like he, he's, he's sitting in the inn and he's listening to the conversations and it's just, it's so flat and there's nothing really interesting happening. Finally, he like goes up to his room and goes to bed for the night where he's like troubled by nightmares, uh, gets up or something. Ha- I forget what wakes him up, but he gets up for some reason and um, goes to open up a chest that's in his room and discovers that not only does like the chest not open, um, like the keyhole isn't real and the chest isn't real. Like it's just a solid object. There is no opening it. Right. And he so, goes into the hallway and tries to open up other doors and discovers similarly, these doors are not doors. They're just flat objects on the wall. And he goes downstairs and he sees the barmaid and it's dark and it's the middle of the night and she's just standing there motionless. And he walks up to her and her eyeballs are gone. Yeah. And as this happens, like the whole place starts to kind of melt and and and... It's really like this genuinely freaky moment. Genuine nightmare logic. Yeah, right? absolutely. A sense of dread, that sense of sort of being inescapable. You know, you know something is horrible, but you can't look away. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, I think this is something that Belair's is particularly effective with 
throughout this book and then in his later work, again, if you should choose to ever look at it. That is definitely his strong point. As you say, um, you know, the movement from one episode to another can be maybe a little choppy. Yeah. Um, but this this power of, of dread and, you know, that's not an easy thing to accomplish, right? You know, there's no uh, universal thing that makes us all scared. But every time I've read these scenes, it's still is like, oh, yeah, that's that's kind of weird. Man. Yeah, I guess that's maybe that's where like he can build a scene. I just feel like in this novel, he had a hard time building characters or story. Right. Even like the very first chapter is Prospero in his eccentric wizard house. And we meet his like. His, his goofy talking mirror where he's watching the Cubs game and all of these like wacky things are happening around the, around the house. And that's done very effectively. It's, it's, it's very goofy. It's eccentric. Lots of fun, funny, wild, little random things are happening. So that, that scene is built really nicely. But then when you put these scenes next to other scenes, they just don't seem to really fit. Like the puzzle, the puzzle pieces don't seem to fit. Right, right. It would be interesting to see how he approached this other than what I've said, that he was trying to um, work out the idea of a magician who was not sort of omnicompetent like Gandalf or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, so did he write this, you know, chapter to chapter and then, you know, try to find a through line? What was, you know, what was his process for doing this? You know, we'll never know, obviously. Um, Speaking you know. of that, there, there aren't any Appendix N authors who are still alive, are there? I, I think they're all uh, gone. That's a good question. I would have to, you know, nothing jumps out of my mind. I'm pretty sure they're all gone at this yeah. point. Yeah, I don't think you can really follow up on any, with any of them at the moment. Right, right. I mean, certainly some of them, I don't think there's much study on Bolaire's. I mean, there's just a ton of study on, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs yeah. and Tolkien. All that. So we can sort of extrapolate more about what they were trying to do or accomplish. Um, but again, I'm not a YA specialist, so, you know, maybe there are people who know a lot more about this. And um, certainly as I... Um, as we work on the show notes, anything else that we dig up will be in there. But I think, um, again, this idea of these protagonists who are not typically heroic, they're, do- they're doing their best under these circumstances, and they, they know that something has gone awry in, the, you know, in their universe, is uh, interesting both from a narrative point of view, and then later on if we talk about it from a gaming point of view, that would be a different way to approach an adventure. It's not about people you know, looking for treasure or you know, looting or, or trying to gain glory. Right, it's about trying to set the world back on its proper course, in a sense. And so I think that's um, an interesting way to to do things. If we, you know, talk about you know wanting to run a different style of adventure, for example. Sure. Yeah, and also to protect yourself because right. Prospero and and Roger are absolutely being threatened by yeah. by Melicus, if that's yeah. how you say his name. Right. So yeah, I, I think um, I think they're. You know, a, a different style game again. You know, with wizards as the you know, and they're certainly not all powerful. They're quite knowledgeable. Uh, they do their best. Yeah. Um, but... So let's talk about magic. Sure. So Face in the Frost is listed by title on the Appendix N. So clearly Gary thought this was a, a title worth circling and paying attention to. And I would imagine it's because of the magic. Would you uh, agree with that? I would agree. I think uh, magic and maybe the ability to set a specific scene or vignette. Okay. You know. So focusing on magic for the time being... What aspects of the Face in the Frost do you think were used to inform the magic system in kind of the first iterations of Dungeons and Dragons, or maybe specifically AD&D? Hmm, good question. I mean, it's certainly not a Vancean idea of magic in here. Correct. And um, Or any of those modifications like that. And it's, but I think maybe the idea, and maybe we don't play it this way anymore, but the idea of... of having to gain specific knowledge at certain points in the story. It's not all laid out for you, so they have to go and quest and discover, you know, lost knowledge. Um, I mean, there is a shrinking spell, which is kind of fairly spectacular when they shrink themselves into their model boat and they basically go through a little... Um, uh, Stewart's not the right word, but something like that, too. Uh, yeah. Um, Although, can I interrupt you for a quick second and say that that also annoyed me because later on in the story, there's a scene where they're, they're confronted with a series of percolises and they can't figure out how to get past them. And I'm like, guys, you had a shrinking spell in the beginning of the novel. Cast a shrinking spell again and walk through them. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're clearly more logical than me. I don't <laughs> yeah. Sorry, please continue. No, no, no. I, it's a, it's a, um, but, uh, My brain tends to pick nits. Okay. Well, no, I, I guess we all do. I guess it's just where we do that. Yes, so, fair um, So, uh, yeah, I, I think um, it's not so much a system, but the the uh, creation of mood as far mm-hmm. as magic is concerned, right? So it's not like he's 
I feel like this is, okay, this is the map for a magic system. Although there may be some effects in here that are mapped to D&D spells, you know, in the player's handbook or such. Um, but the idea that magic is sort of mysterious, uh, although it is knowledge that can be gained, right? It's not just uh, anything I think of, right? It's not just my willpower does stuff, right? It is specifically there's knowledge. Um, and, I would... and quests, you know, for this knowledge and to set the world right, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so anyway, carry on. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would say that actually I do think there is a pretty gameable magic system that you can extract from the face and the frost. I just don't think it's necessarily the magic system that Gary ended up using. Because f for one thing, there's a, there, there, are, there are moments later in the book where... Prospero wants to cast magic, but he says he's, like, running out of magic. Mm -hmm. And then there's a moment where he's out of magic. So clearly, like, spell points are sure. happening here. It's not it's not Avancian. It's like I've got a limited number of mana points that I can spend, and then I'm going to be out. Right. Although that's another thing that bugged me, because on um, page 158, he said he felt empty, drained, and he knew that he had no magic power left. So he was completely out of magic on page 158, but then on page 164, which is the same day, not much later, he says, there was no doorknob. So, of course, Prospero tried the opening spell. And I'm like, mm. how did you do the opening spell if you're out of magic? But anyways, so. Uh, <laughs> Although nothing happens. So maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, okay. Yes. But I feel like if you were out of magic, you would right, not, wouldn't even attempt it. Exactly. Right. You would know that you were out of magic. Got it. Anyways. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah. So I feel like you've got spell points here. But one thing that I, I, I also think is really cool about the Face and the Frost and its magic system is there is a massive diversity of magic because there are, there are really powerful spells. There's one point where uh, Prospero utters a word that he can only speak a few times in his life mm -hmm. uh, to get him out of a situation. And there are other times where Prospero is um, sitting, uh, sit, sitting on the ground he surrounds himself in a circle. He's lighting beeswax candles. He's, uh, uh, in, he's reciting incantations. There's other times where he's memorizing spells. He's going through a spell book and memorizing specific spells. There are other, there's another time where he's, on a, he's on, a, uh, on, on a bridge, and he wants to burn this bridge down. Has no idea how to do it, so he's just like throwing out tarot cards and making stuff up and mm. guessing. So you've got these many different ways that you can cast magic. In, in this book, which I think is really kind of cool and fun. And I would actually argue that in some ways, Gary Gygax did a pretty good job of emulating that with Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, because when you look at um, the spell descriptions and casting times for a lot of spells, and especially old school games, some of them have casting times of just um, one round. Mm. Some of them have casting times of a turn. Some of them have casting times of like several days. Right. A turn, by the way, in D&D terms is 10 minutes in game time. Thank right. you for clarifying that. Yeah. Yes. In old school D&D, a turn is 10 minutes. Yeah. And strangely enough, I also feel like 4th edition D&D did that well because they specifically separated spells into... Uh, into spells and rituals. Mm. So spells were things you could just say quickly in combat and they'd go off, and everything else was a ritual that like took a long time to do. Um, I don't care for 4th edition, but I thought that specific thing was interesting, where maybe with 3rd edition and 5th edition, there's less of that. It, it doesn't matter, but I, I feel like the, the idea that each spell can kind of have its own flavor and the, the the way it looks and the way it's cast can be very, can be quite different. Right. I actually think D and D did a nice job of emulating. Right. I think um, that's one of the things that maybe not everybody latched onto when they were playing first edition. I mean, it's certainly there in all the spell descriptions, but some, I think maybe people didn't weren't really cognizant. Again, as the same thing with the spell components, like. Oh, it's listed that there's a physical component, you have to be able to speak, and you have a gestural component, a somatic component, and maybe people weren't really aware of how those all things, all those things interacted mm -hmm. to make the, you know, to work in the game. Right? Yeah. Just, oh, this spell, just, okay, it's your turn, cast a spell, right? Um, so this tendency to maybe have forgotten about that and to treat uh, magic as purely a mechanical effect that can be evoked. Um, and there's usually no downside for 
casting a spell in uh, Dungeons Dragons as written, other than maybe losing the spell. Yeah. Uh, unlike, say, uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics or some other games that might have backfire effects or make you more tired and stuff like that. Um, so it is good to, whether or not you're pulling out a magic system, it's good to read a book about magic and then to bring some of that flavor back into your game, whether it's actually mechanical or not. Say, oh, when you do this and, you know, the you know you suddenly hear a thousand crickets you know start you know making sounds even though you know even though you're in the middle of the city and there shouldn't be any crickets you know you know something like that that um, just makes magic a little bit weird and uncertain again mm-hmm. um, that it is ultimately researchable and, and and you can learn more magic but you know there's always more to learn yeah right? and so I think that. Uh, especially if you were playing a magic user-centered game, which maybe is not always the case. A lot of times maybe we think of, like, the magic user as just one component. Um, you know, the, the artillery in a D&D game, right? The long-range artillery. But if we thought, okay, well, let's change it up a little bit and let's make it less about um, pure physical threats or extracting treasure. Let's make it a quest for knowledge and have it centered around, you know, the magic user character or magic user characters, but then try to make differentiate each of the magic users in terms of their... Uh, spell list or specialties or the knowledge that they bring um, that could be very useful um, maybe d d is not the perfect game for that I mean I know there's other games like Ars Magica that really center about you know wizards and, and their quest for knowledge um, but I think it's you could still do it I think you, you know I think it would just maybe take a slight shift in your mindset as the game master and then to communicate that to your players like I want to try something a little different it's going to be adventure but it's not hack and slash it's not about killing dragon and getting all the gold and gems out of the cave this is about you know finding this spell or finding out what's causing you know you know all the corn to go, you know wither and go black in this kingdom and you know, sure. how we do that and then and make the threats more sort of dread-like and existential and one game that does that quite well um not D at all but is call of cthulhu right because mm-hmm. you have the sanity mechanics that people are always like oh, we're worried about preserving the the, the, the mental attributes oh, of the yeah. characters. there's a, a very very clear uh, yeah. repercussion to using magic in call of cthulhu right right uh, and again, that sense of dread, building up dread, right? Yeah. And again, as you said, there was a call out, you know, Yugoth, there's a uh, H.P. Lovecraft, you know, maybe it's just a little throwaway. He liked, you know, had read a Lovecraft story and liked it, but there's a little call out in the story. Right? Well, and also the entire story hinges on a wizard who has encountered this dark tome that has completely driven him mad. Uh, right. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of Lovecraft going on in this. Sure. That's, uh, that's, that's very, that's very Lovecraftian, on, on, you know, at least in flavor right there. I mean, yeah. People could argue about what is the essence of Lovecraft, and we will do that when we get to Lovecraft. You know, sure, probably, sure. But, um, and especially when we get to Lovecraft and then later August Derleth. Uh, right, <laughs> I'm right. sure we'll be going back and forth uh, quite a bit on what, right, the, right. what, what is that's, truly Lovecraftian the, or not. Uh, that's the debate uh, just as much as what is, does DeCamp understand Conan? You know, so. <laughs> exactly. Um, but st- uh, staying focused on, spell, uh, on the magic for a moment, um, I, I also feel like... The, um, that later editions of D&D actually do a better job of emulating another aspect of this than earlier editions, which is um, in this novel that we, we encounter another wizard who is um, whose specialty is plant magic. Mm-hmm. And just the idea that you can encounter a wizard whose specialty is plant magic is not really something that's emulated so well in... Um, in maybe the first editions of D and D, but then starting with second edition, or possibly I don't, I don't know if this was something from um, from the rules Ar- rules arcana. Is that what that book was uh, called? Unearthed arcana. Thank you. I, I, yeah. I, I knew that was that was wrong. Yeah. Uh, from un- that maybe there was something brought up in Unearthed arcana. I'm not sure, but it was definitely there by second edition, which is the idea of specialty schools, mm. where as a wizard you can be a wizard who is you know. Uh, a transmuter or an evoker. Like, yes, in first edition we had an illusionist, but other than the illusionist, we didn't really have any specialist wizards. Right. right. Um, and I know that GURPS is, does a really good job of allowing you to build a, 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 um, a wizard who specifically focuses on... Yeah, different schools of magic. Right? Exactly, because right. every spell has a spell prerequisite from within that school so it's really easy to build, and there's even a plant school. So right. you could even in GURPS build a plant wizard. Right. Um, where that specifically building a plant wizard in any edition of D and D would be quite difficult unless you wanted to just custom play, build that right. class and or just play a, a druid in this case. And, but that's still not the same thing because you feel like the druid has a religious context. Whereas, yeah. Um, sure. I think um, certain games that are more optimized for creating a certain flavor and, and um, 
maybe first edition is not that game, as yeah. you say, or hadn't gotten to that point yet. Um, who knows what would happen if Gary Gygax had, you know, stayed with, you know, had been able to stay at TSR and continue to develop uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Would he have more more focused? Um, the but magic? like I said, I feel like first edition did a great job of um, emulating the diversity of magic. Right. But one thing that no edition of D&D is, has really done that I'm aware of, which this book also does and a lot of Appendix N does, because Harold Shea does this as well, is a mechanic for inventing spells on the fly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yes, there are very complicated rules on how you can research and create spells in first edition that require you to spend 300,000 gold pieces and experience points and spend months in, 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 in solitary confinement right. doing your, your, your researches in a, in, a, in, a, in a tower over the sea or whatever. But th- there's no mechanic for just, like, I'm here on this bridge and I need to burn it down and I don't have a spell for it. Right. And I feel like in other game systems, you could make that work more. Like, if you wanted to do that in Dungeon Crawl Classics... There's no real rule for it, but maybe you could be like, sure, uh, but roll a d12 on your spell check. Right, right. And the, the level effect you're looking at is maybe roughly comparable to this level effect uh, from another known spell. So this is where you'd have to get to, to get to that spell. Uh, and certainly spell um, uh, games like GURPS or maybe RuneQuest, which are more based on a sort of a point spell point expenditure, you can mm-hmm. scale more appropriately, more readily and say, okay, well... Based on what you're trying to describe, that would normally cost this many spell points, but since you've never cast it before, it's going to be this difficulty and cost you that many more scale points. But yeah. once you cast it three or four times, it's some, a spell that you now know and understand, and we can regularize it and write a description for it, right? Um, yeah, and maybe if you wanted to in Dungeons and Dragons, if you wanted to do something on the fly, you could maybe say, you know, okay, what you're describing sounds to me like a third level spell. Right. Let's have that take one of your third level spell slots. But I'm going to make you roll a d20, and if you roll it under your intelligence, it works. And if you don't, something bad goes wrong. Right, right. And maybe people did house rule this in the day and play it, play it that way. You yeah, know? maybe. And, and I know that there was, you know, a role master that spell law, and so I know that people were modding stuff from the very beginning. And certainly, RuneQuest has, I think, three spell systems built in. You okay. know, there's, you know, I'm so. Do you, do you know about role master spell law? I've, I've not heard of this. Uh, so you know, there was Arms Law. Okay. Right, which was a, a t- attempt to. Create I know more, very little about role master. Um, so this was the one again a series of supplements that were trying to create sort of more granular, detailed effects for Dungeons Dragons. So you would you know roll the hit roll, but then you would roll on a percentile table and say, oh, you know, you carved off you know the the dragon's big toe or something okay. like that. And so they, they did that with Arms Law, and that was quite successful and really added too much granularity, frankly. So then with that, I, I, I never really played it much, but I had some friends who had it. So then Spell Law was the attempt to do the same four spells, I okay. believe. And again, I think RuneQuest was an attempt to emulate what uh, Greg Stafford felt was magic as it existed in mythology, you know, so the sh- shamanic magic, okay. you know, magic that's based on sort of, sort of, quasi-scientific principles, you know, of, you know, having to do pentagrams and all, you know, symbolic magic, so to speak. And That's sounding like Harold Shea. Right. And then the stuff that is, might be more closely resemble psychic power. So that was a RuneQuest attempt of saying, oh, here we, here's where we think that D&D is not quote-unquote realistic enough, right? And then GURPS is very similar, and GURPS grew out of um, the fantasy trip. So those, again, were very similar. Uh, what they don't do, what those games do well, is maybe scale. They scale sort of in a sort of narrower range, mm-hmm. but you know the difference between a first level spell and a ninth level spell in Dungeons and Dragons is enormous. You know, you get Great Wish, which basically lets you do whatever you want, right? Sure. Um, and you can't really scale that effectively in a in a system that works well at the level of a levelless, you know, percentile based character, all the way up to you know I can alter the fabric of reality and do this thing, right? Uh, it might work with a game that's designed for a supers mechanic, like, say, Champions. Sure. Right? But it doesn't really work well for GURPS or, you know, again, RuneQuest, as as I recall them. Now, again, games have changed a lot, and, and people are always modding games, so, you know, anybody who comes up with a system that works within, you know, their otherwise preferred framework without breaking it, man, more power to you, but... I think by creating the Vancean system, you lost a level of improv, but you allowed a level of scalability mm-hmm. that's not present in some of maybe the quote-unquote uh, spell point-based systems. You know, Like I said, one of the strengths of maybe the D&D magic as written is you, you lost a little level of improv, but allowed you to scale quite effectively from, say, first level to ninth level spells, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was one. my one thought, is that you, you lost one thing, but you gained another thing, right? Um, but what are your thoughts on to 
you know, the trade-offs uh, of creating a magic systems that allow for more flexibility in improv. I don't know, again, maybe like Fate, we could just describe whatever you wanted to do. Again, I haven't played Fate. Um, and then it would be up to the GM to say, you know, how it manifests or why it wouldn't manifest just the way you wanted it. The first thing that I think of is the cartoon The Last Unicorn. And I've not read Peter Beagle's The Last Unicorn, and I know right. that it is featured in the Moldvay Cook inspirational right. source material. Right. Um, I would love to read it. I had the paperback at home. Right. Um, it's not on the list that I put for our um, extra credit reading. Right. It's Perhaps not a fantasy it should game, be. But it is on Valentine Adult Fantasy series also. So yeah, it, it's it, Valentine it, Adult yeah. Fantasy. It's on the Moldvay. It's on the Moldvay Cook inspirational right. source material. But then yeah, there's also a lot of stuff that's on that list that I'm not particularly interested right. in reading. So maybe we'll tack this onto the very end of the project 30 years from now. Maybe exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. In in, in 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 2065, when we finish this project, we'll we will then conclude it with uh, the Last Unicorn. There you go. Uh, possibly, uh, but. The reason I bring up The Last Unicorn is there's that great scene where the Red Bull is coming and it's like going after the, the unicorn and Schmendrick is like, magic, do as you will. And he's waving his arms up in the air and like all this like great magic flows through him. And Schmendrick is not a great magician. Mm-hmm. Like he's constantly bumbling everything, but he's able to harness these really great powers. And in doing so, he transforms the unicorn into a woman. Mm-hmm. And then the Red Bull is no longer interested in her because the Red Bull only wanted to um, herd the unicorn into the sea. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the Red Bull kind of slink, slinks away. But now Schmendrick is just exhausted and falls to the ground. And in that moment, clearly... All of his spell points are gone. Right. His strength, and he probably spell burned all the way down to like a strength of three, a dexterity, an agility of three, a stamina of three. Right. He is exhausted. He's on the ground. He's limp. He's weak. And But in doing so, he was able to conjure this really fantastic spell effect that he wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Mm. So I feel like if you create a mechanic where you can completely exhaust and deplete the magic user so that they're capable of great feats. Um, I think that's a way of incorporating the ability for great magic without having to have this really super rigid, like you need to have gone, uh, you, you need to have murdered 100,000 XP worth of monsters right. in order to have the, the, the magical knowledge to cast so this spell. That's uh, Carcosa, right? From Lamentations <laughs> of the Flame Princess. <laughs> what, uh, so so, no, I was just joking. That's an in-joke about OSR because everything's a ritual about how you have to sacrifice like 30 children or oh. something. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. something horrible like that, you know, some, some controversy. Well, I think maybe DNCC uh, uh, manages to thread the needle, right? Because it does have the semblance of a traditional Vancean system because it's leveled magic and you can only know so many spells, right? But you don't automatically lose the spell. And as you say, depending on if you spell burn, which is to say you physically weaken yourself, you can have more power in the spell. So um, the downside of DCC, because it's very table-oriented, is that you have to sort of write these into a table and maybe at the very top level, like, you know, you roll a 40 or whatever the equivalent is, then it's an open-ended effect that has to relate to the original scale description. But mm-hmm. then that... Yeah, so the downside of DCC is that you really have to, it's not purely narrative. You sort of have to create the framework for each spell already, whereas something a little bit more open-ended, again, um, I'm thinking of the story games and Fate, but I'm, I could be just talking out of my hindquarters since I haven't played those games. Those are more open-ended. You say, okay, this seems to be the appropriate level of power that the story would require and my character would have to do this. Like, as you say, Schmendrick doesn't have much power, mm-hmm. that much knowledge. Again, I haven't read Last Unicorn either, but... Basically, he is channeling something. It's not actually him, as you're describing it to me, that's doing this thing, right? It's, it's channeled through him, all this energy. Yeah, he's saying, magic, do as you will. So right. he, he, he doesn't even know exactly what he's asking for. He's just saying, like, this situation is messed up, and right. holy crap, I need your help. Right, right. So he's going to use whatever equivalent of however many spell points to create some effect, and then yeah. at that point, if you were the game master, you would say, okay, well, if you spent that many points, you could do this thing. Yeah. Right. And for Dungeon Crawl Classics, you know, I will say that, like, yes, they do have a leveled spell system, and I do run games regularly for the public, and in those games, I do follow the, ma- the magic system as written, but when I do campaign play that's outside of the public play that's just with me and my friends, I actually don't limit wizards to the spells uh, to the spell levels that they had access to at whatever level they're at right. I will absolutely let a first level wizard cast a fourth level spell right, and know a fourth level spell but the reason for that is in Dungeon Call Classics every time you roll a spell check you actually every time you cast a spell you need to make a spell check right. so you're rolling a d20 you're adding your level and your intelligence modifier and you're hitting and you have to hit some kind of a target number otherwise you lose a spell 
and or something bad that happens. happens. And the higher level spells have a higher threshold. Exactly. Yeah. So those spells are harder to cast. So right. if I'm a first level wizard, and every time I'm trying to cast that fourth level spell, I need to get a 16 in order for that spell even to go off, then most of the time I cast it, it's not going to work. Right. And for me, that limit... Is enough of a is enough of a limit to allow a first level character access to a fourth and level. And if you spell. wanted to modify that even more, you could uh, move up or down what's called the dice chain in DCC yes. to make the the roll a different die as opposed to D twenty. Absolutely, I could be even jerkier and say that like you you're you're working with a higher you're working with the same spell table, but you're rolling a D sixteen instead of a D twenty right. because you're not quite strong enough yet to yield that magic. Sure. Something like that. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, something, I know that, for example... But again, that's not rules as written. Right, right. I believe, I haven't read it yet, but the VAM supplement for uh, yes. Lamentations of Flame Princess was also an attempt to modify the traditional Vancean magic system that's present in D&D. And then it's another one, Wonder and Wickedness, Paolo Greco, I think, who... Yeah, uh, Gavin Norman and I have both of them. I, I'm not intimately familiar with either yet, but I have looked through them, and I really am super into the idea of moving towards a levelless magic system in kind of OSR-styled gaming. Because mm-hmm. uh, part of it is the, a lot of the higher-level spells are really fun, but most of us don't play characters that can ever access those spells. So it's like you, the, a big section of the core books of these games that you are sitting on your shelf will never be used right. because you're never playing characters who right. have access to Unless you're to playing with the that. same group for literally 15 years to get exactly. to that point. Yeah. Or you're starting your game at just an absurdly high level, which is really fun when you're 8, but it's less fun when you're 38 or 48. Right. You kind of lose connection. to the, You don't gain that connection to your character that you had if you do the hero to zero method. Although some people hate the hero to zero. So, you know, whatever gets you the most mileage at your table, I guess. Absolutely. It speaks to the robustness of the D&D framework that you could basically try to extract that and try to bolt on a new system and see if it works. And it seems to for some people, right? I mean, I guess I'm sure there's some people who say, no, that's heresy, and, you know, burn these two guys at the stake. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, on page 271, right. it actually says right. that. You know, um, destroy the very electrons by which this podcast has been created so that they're no longer. <laughs> okay, but you, you cannot destroy energy. Okay. So, <laughs> whatever the law of thermodynamics it is, says you cannot destroy energy. You can only change its state. So this podcast will be there until the heat death of the universe. <laughs> you might not be able to interpret it, but it'll be there. Um, no, I, I, again, it speaks to the robustness and also to the sort of um, experimental nature of, I guess, what we would call the OSR, the uh-huh. old school renaissance that people really want to try. This. Although people were trying to do these things back in the day. They just didn't have the flexibility of doing it within the sort of D&D system because TSR was so litigious. Yes. Right? And so you really had to do something else and really differentiate it, whereas now with the open game license, people have free access to the underpinnings of the D&D system. Yeah. You just can't call it D&D, but they have all the underpinnings there to, to work with it as they will. Like when we got Gavin Norman on here for yeah. the Dying Earth episode, like his complete Vivimancer yeah. uh, book that he put out is a fantastic book. Oh, it's tremendous. Really fun, super creative, and it's the kind of thing that if if we were still in that super litigious area, we, we never would have had access to because it would never have been published otherwise. Right. And there's so much creativity happening out there in kind of the DIY third-party publishing industry right now, specifically with Dungeon Crawl Classics and any of the OSR stuff, Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Swords and Wizardry. Swords and Wizardry. Really, really fun, creative, inventive stuff that's coming out that's um, really changing the hobby. Right. And I'm actually happy to see that this mindset is actually moving over to other contemporary games. You know, also the RuneQuest system is now basically the... There's a lot of quote quote unquote D100 games because mm-hmm. you can't copyright an actual set of rules mechanics, but you can copyright the presentation. So people can sort of reverse engineer, uh, you know, RuneQuest, reverse engineer. No one's attempted to do that with GURPS, but uh, reverse engineer um, Traveler because it's the Cepheus engine, I guess, or something like that. So I'm ha- I'm happy to see that people are now looking taking that same mindset that approach from D and D or the OSR as it relates to D&D and bring it to these other games mm-hmm. um, that may feel that they serve the purpose better. Um, D&D benefits from being familiar to almost all gamers, so yeah. that's the one we mod uh, first, but maybe it's still not the best for the specific attempt uh, approach that you're trying to create. Um, yeah, and it's interesting to see how also uh, mechanics that are coming up kind of in kind of more underground DIY presses 
are, are becoming popular enough in those environments that they're moving over to their more mainstream contemporaries as well. Like with the seventh edition of Call of Cthulhu, there's now a luck mechanic. Right. And there's a, a pushing the luck mechanic. And these are clearly things that have been happening in kind of smaller indie games. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's cool to see a game like Call of Cthulhu take that on. I've yet to play seventh edition Call of Cthulhu, but yeah. that sounds like a really fun edition right. that I think works really would work really well with I would, your system. I would definitely like to play that, but I'm... I've liked every edition I've played so far, and uh, up through six. Uh, well, probably my favorite is probably third, third edition. But, okay. Um, uh, Ken Height uh, speaks highly of fifth, fifth edition as the sort of cleanest presentation. Okay. Um, so uh, I have not yet played seventh. The only thing that sort of bugs me a little bit is sort of the, and this may be the old schooler in me, is that the stats are essentially the same, but now they're listed as percentile terms, so you don't convert them from like you know you have a strength of 18, is now it's a strength of 90, right? And so that kind of bothers me. It's like, strength of 90? Who has strength of 90? 18. <laughs> so that's just the... Uh, when I was know, a kid. Right. Nerd rage in my... <laughs> nerd rage. Um, but I would definitely like to play that. And, and um, the sense I get from a lot of these games now is that they're really designed as toolkits with a set of dials so you can dial up or dial down these effects mm-hmm. to sort of suit what you're trying to accomplish at the table or, or the... Or the uh, preferences of your table. Um, so I think that's uh, a really cool thing. I mean, there are people who would argue that, no, everything has to be either rules as written or there are other people who are conversely say that, you know, anything you want, you know, um, but then that's just make really on a playground, right? So you need some kind of framework that's agreed upon to allow you to do your best work, I think. Um, but it, the, the extent to which it's a tight framework or a loose framework is a matter, I think, of personal preference of you and your group. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a really fun conversation that we've had out of the face and the frost. Is there anything else that you want to uh, throw out there before we wrap this episode up? Uh, As relates to the face and the frost, again, I think it's definitely a worthwhile read. The prose is not something that you're going to bounce off. So, so again, it's quite a quick read. So, um, is it one of the titans of Appendix N? Is it absolutely essential? Uh, Maybe less so. Um, You can maybe move it down your list a little bit. But I think you should certainly, you know, give it a shot. Is, is my take on this book. Um, I, and especially if you want to move away from sort of the traditional heroic swords and sorcery, uh, but still stay firmly in a fantasy camp of game, um, you know, give this book a look. I like okay. it. So uh, what are we working on next, Jeff? Well, uh, next, our next episode, episode 12, will be Michael Moorcock's The Stealer of Souls. And then episode 13 will be Gardner F. Fox's Kothar Barbarian Swordsman. I like it. Okay, so uh, do us a favor. If you like our podcast, rate us on iTunes, give us a review. It really helps people find us. Um, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, email us, uh, email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at appendix underscore n. And you can also visit our website at appendixnbookclub.com. Hoy puts a lot of work into the show notes for each episode, and there's just a ton of really cool uh, info uh, that he supplements each episode with. And if you're interested in meeting us in person and hanging out and discussing these books, uh, go ahead and join the meetup group at meetup.com slash dccnyc. That's where we have our Appendix N Book Club in-person events. Terrific. We hope to see you around. Uh, See you in the stacks. Read on.